Well, do turn with me in your Bibles this evening to Acts chapter 15 that we had read a moment ago. I wonder if you were asked to sum up what was the most obvious difference between Christianity and the other religions that there are in the world, what would immediately come to your mind? We, we live in a, in a multi-religious society in which people have a smorgasbord, a buffet, if you will, of, of opportunities to uh, pick up any of the many religious views, religious ideas that there are in the world. But there is one thing, I think, that is quite obviously distinctive about Christianity that you would, if you look carefully, uh, notice immediately is quite different from any of these other religious ideas that are on the market. Do you know what it is? Well, I don't want you to shout out because this is a Presbyterian church and you're not allowed to do that. But, but it's good to know you're at least alive out there. And uh, some of us have been at this conference all weekend and frankly, it's been tiring. So I can understand if you, if you doze off, I'll just shout loudly and, and give you a start. <clears throat> now, it seems to me the most obvious thing, and, and people who are not Christian people will often comment on this to us. It is that of all the religions in the world, it's Christianity that seems to be in the biggest mess. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that it has so many factions. It's not just that it's divided east and west, so you have orthodoxy in the east, the orthodox church, and you have the church Catholic in the west, which is divided between the Protestants and the Catholics. But within the Roman Church, for example, you have various factions that are going on all the time that are more or less uh, in, in allegiance to the Vatican. And outside of the Roman Church among Protestants, you have all kinds of views that are being spouted forth by various scholars. You have 126 plus Baptist denominations. Did you know that? In America alone. And uh, I don't know how many Presbyterian denominations there are, and now many Episcopal denominations, and you can go on and on and on and on, and there's just this amazing variety of teaching going on under the banner of Christianity. <clears throat> and you ask yourself the question, why is this? And I think that's a good question to ask, and I think it's a good question for us to look at this evening, and we're going to be helped by the passage that we're studying together now, and I'm just going to get some water here. Uh, it's whiskyless water, but it will do for the occasion. <clears throat> and uh, <coughs> uh, one of the things that this passage is telling us this evening, and I think one of the explanations, or the explanation which the Bible gives for the diversity of views that there are within Christianity, is simply this. <coughs> Christianity claims to be final truth. Final revealed truth. Therefore, final revealed inerrant truth. And if Christianity is true, <clears throat> then you would imagine, therefore, that it would be the particular interest and concern of its enemy. Now make this assumption with me. You may not be a 
a Christian person this evening, so I'm asking you to kind of play the game here for a moment. Supposing it is true, supposing the Christian message is true, final, revealed, ultimate, inerrant truth. If it had an enemy, wouldn't it be in the interests of the enemy to attack the truth that Christianity believes and maintains? And I think it is, in fact, an interesting phenomenon that other religions, including Islam, which has one or two divisions within it, but by and large, other religions are not as beset by doctrinal attack or error to the degree with which Christianity is. And what I want to argue is that one of the great apologetic arguments for uh, the Christian religion is in fact the fact that there is this diversity within it and this attack that is going on constantly on final, revealed, ultimate, inerrant truth. Now that's what the early Christians themselves believed was the case. So for example, the Apostle uh, Paul when he's writing right at the very end of his life, says this, and the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. He says again in perhaps his last letter ever that he writes, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and, uh, and will turn away from listening to the truth and will wander off into myths. And in the very last book ever to be written in the lifetime of the apostles, the book of Revelation, the very last book in our Bible conveniently, so that we know that it's the very last book ever written, he pictures, using the vivid pictorial language and symbolic language that John uses, he pictures our enemy, the enemy of the people of God, the enemy of God, Satan. Satan, who is the deceiver of the whole world, is thrown down onto the earth. And from his mouth, he is a liar, he is a deceiver. From his mouth, there comes a river that seems to sweep the woman, that is the church, the woman, the, the church of God, the bride of Christ, seems to sweep her away like a flood. It's a vivid picture. Here is spewing from hell deceit, lies, accusations against the Word of God and the truth of God that seeks to sweep away the bride of Christ into error. That's the picture that John paints. And when you come to the book of Acts, we're not surprised to find that in the book of Acts, the early Christians are concerned with what will be the feature of this period which is described in the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament as the last days. Now, I'm not being melodramatic. The last days, in biblical terms, starts with Jesus' first coming and ends with Jesus' second coming. You're all here tonight 
which tells me that he hasn't come again. So we're in those last days. And one of the features of those last days is the great tribulation. That is great not because of its intensity, but because of its length. That this whole period in, of the last days is characterized by tribulation. There is intensification of that towards the end of this period that is yet to be, but it is the feature of the whole of this period of God's dealings with the church. Tribulation. In this world, Jesus said, you will have tribulation. The Apostle Paul has just told them in chapter 14, uh, we didn't read it this evening, we read it last time, but in chapter 14, verse 22, through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of God. And the apostle in that context has urged these early Christians to remain faithful, to continue in the faith. The faith there is not their faith in God, but it is the faith, that objective, outside of yourself, standalone, ultimate, final, revealed truth of God that you find in the Scripture, God's inerrant Word. That faith, the faith we confess in our creeds and confessions, the faith we confess whenever we read the Scripture and proclaim the Bible, that faith which we most assuredly believe, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. What is the feature of this period in which he strengthens people to remain faithful to the faith? He says, it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. So Paul, at the end of chapter 14, has been strengthening these new Christians. He, he is strengthening them by teaching them. He's strengthening them by appointing elders to oversee the work there. He tells them of coming tribulation. He indicates to them that the tribulation is going to be something related to the faith, which is why they need strengthened to continue in the faith. It is because their faith, that is, not their faith in God, but the faith they believe is going to regularly be in trouble. And that trouble is not long in coming. Now we come to chapter 15. You see? The threat to the church. There's my first point. And it's a sobering thing to discover in the book of Acts that the most the single most significant threat to the future of early Christianity and present-day Christianity is not the persecuting murderers that want to kill Christians. Killing Christians is a good thing because killing Christians apparently builds the church. Killing Christians makes the church grow. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That was their experience then. And trying to ban Christians, trying to suppress Christianity in China has led to Christianity mushrooming in China today. So banning and burning Christians isn't a good thing if you're the enemy of the church. People might like doing that for a little while, but what it's going to do is it's going to actually grow the church. No, the real threat to the church in the book of Acts is a doctrinal threat. It comes from the church itself. 
So having heard this, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God, some men, verse 1, came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. You see, there's the problem. Here are people who are teaching the brothers something that is not revealed. It is not final truth. It is not ultimate truth. It is not inerrant truth. It does not come from the apostles. It is not biblical truth. They are teaching something that is alien. Something that is alien, but awfully close to the real thing. That is the most serious and dangerous error of all. Something that is alien, but nearly the right thing. And they come teaching this thing. They came down and said this, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And then in verses 5 and 6, those who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now let's understand what's going on here. The church is growing. The church is growing and more and more people with exotic names and foreign cultures and questionable pasts are making their way into the membership of the church and into the leadership of the church. And you can imagine a kind of conservative minority, perhaps a fairly strong conservative minority not liking this growth and looking around them and saying, well, these people aren't like us. I always remember in one of the churches that I was in, somebody actually said that. Look at all, you know, this church used to be great before you came and all these new people started coming. Look at them. And I thought the people who were coming were fine. I thought they looked all right. They were dressed all right. They seemed all right. But apparently they didn't like this new people who were coming into the church. And I questioned him and I said, but I've heard you praying that God would save people. But I think he wanted God to save people and send them somewhere else. Anyway, that, that was... That was a problem. Now, conservative people will often be, be a bit scary, a bit scared about things when, th when there's change. But this is not what's going on here. These people were not just conservative-minded people who didn't want change. These people were actually subversive of the gospel. I mean, there were a lot of issues in the early church. There was the growth of the church. There was a potential for misunderstanding. There was a need for pastoral care. There was a need for pastoral practical support, and the church had dealt with that decisively by forming a diaconate. A diaconate was formed, and the diaconate is one of the honored offices of the church that deals with these very issues, deals with the church's growth, the, the potential for misunderstanding, the need for pastoral care, practical support. Those are addressed by the diaconate, and we have an enormously wonderful diaconate here that does that very effectively. But then there is this ominous tone. Let me, put, let me show you how this works. Let's see it in its context. You really need to begin with verse 20, 24, 27 of uh, the previous section where Paul and Barnabas have come back from working in what we now call Turkey, northern Turkey and, and so on, and they've been preaching and they've been seeing people and they're giving a report to the church back in Antioch where they've come from when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now get this. Here there is blessing. The church stands on the brink 
of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, just as Jesus has predicted. And suddenly the gates of hell begin to spew out this river of error unless you are converted according to the custom of Moses. You cannot be saved. I want you to notice some things about these people. I want you to notice that they are people, first of all, who are evidently sincere about what they believe. They are evidently sincere. They're not there primarily to cause trouble. They are deeply committed to the view that a non-Jew has to become a Jew as well as a Christian. They want them to become Christians, but if you're going to become a Christian, you have to become a Jew as well because Christianity starts within Judaism. That's, that's actually quite near the truth, isn't it? It does. Salvation is of the Jews, Jesus said. They had a verse they could quote in their favor from Jesus to support their view. So they were evidently sincere. I want to notice, secondly, that these people probably had a lot of scriptural support for their position. They could point to the Old Testament, which was the only scripture they had at this time, and they could say, well, in the scripture it says, doesn't it prophesy that Israel will one day rule over the Gentile nations? That the Jews have been set aside by God as God's own people with a peculiarly special relationship to Him? And they would choose these verses and they would quote these verses without quoting the others or the context perhaps or, or looking at the bigger picture. But they would have this immensely, tremendously appealing program or idea that they were that they were marketing around and they would have a whole list of proof texts that they could point to that supported their view. And if you talk to a Mormon, if you talk to a Jehovah's Witness, if you talk to any sectarian branch of the Christian church anywhere, there are always people who have proof texts as long as you're armed to support their particular view. Now this issue of circumcision, I am so grateful to say, is not a live issue within the church today. It would be very uncomfortable for half of us here, at least, to have that as a pressing issue that was forced upon us. But long before uh, the, this period that we're reading about, Moses received the ten, long before Moses received the Ten Commandments at Sinai, God had set apart the children of Abraham with uh, this external sign of circumcision. <clears throat> It was the outward mark on the bodies of the male descendants of Abraham of the covenant that God had made with Abraham to bless the world, that everlasting covenant. It was, it, it was placed on Abraham and his family, then on their sons throughout the generations. It was a marker in the flesh of these men of their special privileged relationship with God. It was also a marker in the flesh. It caused the shedding of blood. And it was the picture that the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman was one day going to strike Satan and destroy Satan. And it would be at some cost to the seed of the woman, the shedding of his blood. Christians believed that was fulfilled on the cross with the blood shedding of the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> Now, circumcision had been replaced by baptism by the early Christians. And it was being applied now liberally to men and women. Baptism is water. Water is involved in washing. Uh, and uh, 
the picture of water, of course, is different. The, the circumcision pointed forward to the work of Christ, shedding his blood on the cross. Now that the blood was shed on the cross, there was no need for that sign. There was a need for a sign that pointed to what that blood shedding of Jesus did. What does it do? It washes us. It cleans us. It cleans us from our sin. Baptism points to that cleansing from sin. And so baptism replaces circumcision as the mark. And it is a better mark. It's applied more liberally to men and women alike. It is applied to boys and girls as well as men and women. So now many Gentiles were coming into the church, you see, and they were being baptized rather than circumcised. They're fully members of the church. They believed in Jesus. And so many of them are coming in now that it's a problem. It is a problem. There are more people who are in the church who have been baptized but not circumcised than there were at the beginning. And these people, these people raise their objections to the apostolic, grace-driven, faith-based, circumcision-free gospel that had been preached first in Antioch and now was being preached all over the place. And you need to see their complaint for a moment and their approach. They're, they would have said something like this. Their teachers would have said something like this. We agree that Jesus reached out graciously to Gentile individuals. But where, they would ask, where in Jesus' teaching is there one verse, one verse, just one verse, where Jesus says that he wants to abolish circumcision as a sign that sets the heirs of salvation apart from others. You see, that's an interesting challenge, isn't it? It's the kind of question that people ask. Uh, people will ask it only about infant baptism. Show us just one verse that talks about infant baptism. Well, of course, that's a simplistic approach to the Bible. Or somebody else says, show us one verse that talks about the Trinity. We want to reply, for example, about the Trinity, that the Trinity is all over the Bible. You don't need one verse to support it. It's all over the place. Well, they would have come and they would have had their proof text to support their view. And this is true of all sectarian and heretical sects. And the issue is, how do non-Jews fit into the church of God? Now, what they were saying, by implication, was this. There is a two-tier Christianity going on here. Here are some people. They're Christians. They follow Jesus. They've been baptized, but they've not been circumcised. Therefore, they're not quite, they're not quite really, I was going to say kosher, but they're not, really quite, they're not really quite there yet. They're nearly there, but they're not quite there yet. There's this kind of two-tier Christianity going on. And yet, when you look at the book of Acts up to this point, you can see that everywhere, everywhere, the book of Acts is showing that people, people from all kinds of backgrounds, even people who were banned by the law of Moses, have been entering fully into the life of God. You find Jews and Samaritans and eunuchs who were banished from the temple and Gentiles who believed in Jesus and they've been made welcome by the church. But now these people, these people are saying that, was, that isn't enough. Their faith in Jesus isn't enough. They have to believe in Jesus and be circumcised. Faith plus circumcision is the basis for salvation. 
Do you notice <clears throat> they were arguing that you needed to believe in Jesus and be circumcised in order, in order to be saved. That was the problem. In order to be saved. Now you say, that isn't a problem in the church today. And, and that's true. That isn't a problem in the church today. I want to argue that the very same principles, however, still are a problem in the church today. I take Presbyterianism in America today and Evangelicalism in America generally, but within Presbyterianism in particular today, there's a movement known as the New Perspectives on Paul, abbreviated NPP. These are people who are orthodox in their theology, i.e., they believe the Apostles' Creed, but I want to say this, they have effectively, many of them, effectively moved out of any recognizably reformed position and are more Roman Catholic than they are reformed, but they want to stay in reformed churches and Presbyterian churches. And here is their view. Now, it's, it's a big catch-all phrase. It, it takes in all kinds of people. I know there's nuances and all the rest of it, but I want to make this absolutely clear. There's a whole body of people who believe this. In the language of one of the teachers, Tom Wright, his view is simply this, that justification, these are his words, not mine, justification occurs on the last day, that is the day of judgment, on the basis of the whole life lived. Justification happens on the last day, on the basis of the whole life lived. The sign now that you will be justified on the last day on the basis of the whole life lived, the sign now is your faith in Jesus. That is a mark now that you will be justified on the last day on the basis of a whole life lived. Now there are implications in this teaching. One of the implications is that many people in this movement now reject the whole idea of the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Now somebody says, you're talking Greek now. I don't understand a word you've just said there. Well, you've learned a big word tonight, imputation. When I impute something, if I impute bad, bad motives to you, if I, if I say that, that somebody sat down here near the front, I'm not singling anybody out here, they didn't have a bath today, they smell, and they sat down here so as to put me off my sermon. What am I doing? I'm in, well, I'm telling a lie because you all smell lovely. But, uh, but apart from that, what I would be doing is I would be imputing wrong motives to them. They just didn't know that by sitting there and smelling, they would put me off my sermon. They didn't do it deliberately. But if I impute to them bad motives, I am, I'm, I'm, I'm crediting to them something that is not true, aren't I? Well, the imputation of Christ's righteousness is this. When a man, person, believes in the Lord Jesus, God credits them with the righteousness of Jesus' entire life. In other words, it's not just Jesus died for me, but Jesus lived for me. Jesus lived the life I could not live. He died a death I should have died. And everything that is Jesus, everything about his obedience, if you read Philippians 2, the obedience of Jesus throughout his whole life as, and in his death, is imputed to the believer so that our standing today is secure because we are in Christ and we have everything that's to be found in Christ.
His sinless standing is mine. His work on the cross is mine. His risen life is mine. Everything that is to be found in Christ is mine by my union with Him. The Bible makes it very clear. It is not Jesus plus the whole life lived. It is not Jesus plus circumcision or Jesus plus baptism or Jesus plus anything. It is Jesus alone, fully Him in all that He has done that brings us to God. Now, of course, these people today, like these people back then, have, have good motives in this. Some of them are horrified by the life, the standards of life of people within the church. And what they want to do is they want people within the church to live more obedient lives. And, and it seems to me by scaring them and saying that, that justification on the last day is on the basis of the whole life lived, that will get people living more godly lives in the church. But you don't distort the truth in order to get them there. The other thing they're doing is they're taking words like justification and they are completely uh, neutering those words and pouring a whole new meaning and significance into those words. Justification has nothing to do with being put right with God. Justification is fact to do with uh, uh, other matters altogether. Righteousness, for example, one of the, one of the cognates of, of justification. Righteousness has nothing to do with God's own inherent rightness. It has to do with God's faithfulness. Now, there are other Bible words for faithfulness, but but righteousness now has been just recast as God's faithfulness rather than His righteousness. All of these things are going on all the time. Why are they going on? It's because this is a period of great tribulation. The cause of God and the truth of God are constantly under attack by enemies. Let me tell you, clearly, you heard it here, these are enemies that are doing this. A basic, fundamental Christianity is this. My salvation depends on Jesus' active life of obedience and on Jesus passively being put to death on the cross on my behalf. <clears throat> In the language of an old chorus, upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. This was the issue that's going on in the church here. And when they came to Antioch, they locked horns with the apostle Paul and Barnabas. Why was that? Well, why, why it was, was it was, these were not secondary issues. It's a secondary issue whether you like to drink wine or not. It's a secondary issue whether you like to go to the movies or you think it's not a good thing to go to the movies. Those are all secondary issues. In uh, the first church we were in, there was this kind of rule that women had to wear head coverings. And uh, if a woman came in without a head covering, that was, a, that was a really bad thing. It was a kind of legalism, really, wasn't it? But at the end of the day, it was a secondary issue. But you wouldn't fight over that or leave the church over that or, you know, just slap them around a bit. That was my solution. Get over it. But this, was, this is a salvation issue here. This is a salvation issue here. And it's a salvation issue, let me tell you, within our church. 
I mean the wider church today. The truth of God is at stake. Justification as it's framed within the Westminster Confession of Faith, for example, Martin Luther called it the article by which the church either stands or falls. John Calvin called it the hinge on which everything turns. This is why, this is why we do not regard the Roman church as a church in any recognizable sense because it anathematizes those who believe in justification by faith alone. Do you want to know what Paul thought about these people? I can tell you because he writes what he thought about these people. You can read it for yourself in Galatians chapter 1 verses 6 to 8. He writes to these people in Galatia who are among the people who have been influenced by this teaching and he says, I am astonished. Listen to this language. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. A different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who are troubling you. That is, they're, they're bringing tribulation to you. They are, they are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And he goes on to say this, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As I've said to you before, now I say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Don't you wish Paul would just say what he's thinking, really? And just get it all off his chest. You can't blame the apostle for sending out mixed signals here. What he's saying is that what is at stake is Christ. Is Christ alone sufficient for salvation? It is, is it Christ alone who is to be believed? Is it Christ's merit alone that is credited to the believer? Or is that not enough? Does that have to be made up by our good works? Does that have to be made up by our religious activities? Does that have to be made up by something else that is outside, that is within us and in our power by itself? This whole issue that rises here is in the context of... Uh, of the tribulation of false teaching that afflicts the church. And the resistance to this teaching and to these Jewish believers was so strong that these two positions were brought ultimately to the church. We've got no time, I think, to go there this evening. But I hope I've painted the picture. I'm going to stop there. I have a whole, I have a whole actually, the, actually most of the sermons still to come. Huh. But you don't have time. And some of you have been to the conference and you're tired. And though I'd like to go on and on, I'm afraid that one of you might fall through a window and die. And, and I don't have the apostle's ability to bring you back to life again. So let me just wind up like this. These people were saying this. I want you to take this away with you. If you're, if you're not a Christian and you're not convinced about Christianity, take this away with you this evening. Truth. If Christianity represents final, revealed, inerrant, and ultimate truth. Don't you think that is why it is always, always going to be 
the subject and object of the attack of the enemy who seeks to destroy and undermine that truth. And that would explain why it is that Christianity of all the religions in the world is a movement that is beset by errors of every kind. In every generation. In every generation we have to defend the same gospel. It was the same when I was a young man. Similar things were happening and we had to defend the gospel. If you read 50 years back before that, it was the same issue. 50 years before that, it was the same issue. The Presbyterian Church in North America, this Presbyterian Church, which much, much of it starts here in Philadelphia, this church has been beset by errors over and over again. The same stuff recycled. The devil, by the way, has absolutely no imagination whatsoever. Here was the issue back then. Christ plus circumcision equals salvation. Christ plus the whole life lived equals salvation. And the Apostle Paul says, that isn't the gospel. That is not revealed Final." ultimate, inerrant truth. That won't build the church. That is not the faith that was delivered to you. An enemy has done this. This starts in the river that flows from the beast, the beast's mouth that wants to swap the church, swamp the church and carry it into hell. That's how serious it is. How do I get right with God? By faith alone, in Christ alone. By trusting only, wholly, fully in Him. It's where my joy, my hopes of heaven, depend on that. At the end of the day, when I'm dying... And someone has to say to me, what are you hoping for? The only, the only, the only hope to which I can cling in those last moments is that Christ is enough. Christ is enough. Christ is enough. Let's pray. Father, we pray this evening that by the grace of the Lord Jesus we would be enabled to reach out and to hold on to him who is enough for us. Our Lord Jesus, in all of his life of obedience, in all his death of sacrifice, in all his risen life of triumph, in all his coming again to make, a new, make new all things, we want to embrace him by faith tonight. In his strong name we pray. Amen.